Hi, this is Seth Skorkowski, and you are listening to Tale of the Manticore. The following podcast is intended for a mature audience. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to Tale of the Manticore, Season 2. Like the creature from which it takes its name, Tale of the Manticore is a mashup, a crossbreeding between two different species of storytelling. Here, you will find the unpredictability of old-school RPG paper and dice games with the storycraft of a dark fantasy novel. No character is sacred, and no character will be spared if the dice decide their fate is at hand. According to lore, the tale of a manticore is barbed with cruel iron spikes. There will be much pain in the days ahead. Last time on Tale of the Manticore. The last chapter begins with the party members standing around an upright barrel in an empty warehouse. They're trying to decide on the best course of action to find success in their latest mission. The job? They need to somehow get the royal jester, Briar Patches, free of the city and then escort him safely to Lord Rabbit's friend in Nepul. The problem? There's a citywide manhunt already underway. What's more, Silmoral is under lockdown, and with the arrest and certain interrogation of the clerics of the Church of the Sacred Flame, the authorities will have descriptions of all of the party members. They will also, sooner or later, become aware of the Companion's involvement in the debacle at Burton Square during the King's three days of blood injustice, and the business concerning the false holy symbol, and the quest to retrieve the Silverthorn Blade, which they still carry with them. If Dungeons & Dragons had a mechanic to measure heat, I think the Companions would have a score that was off the charts. Ironically, they could use some literal heat to help with their escape plan. They decided to exit the city through a small smuggler's channel in the Rosedale District. Their biggest problem isn't that it's frozen over. Shauna has discovered that the ice is thin enough to break. The biggest problem will be the unavoidable crawl through the icy water that fills the channel. There's a very real danger that the trip through it, and the exposure they'll have to endure afterwards when they emerge, could be fatal. Before I get into the narrative and find out how the PC's attempt to pass through the smuggler's channel goes, I'll need the stack of index cards I use for character sheets because today is not just a level-up episode, it's a double level-up episode. Oh boy, I can hardly wait. Jace is about to reach level 4, while Catsbane will attain level 5. I'm going to work through them in that order, too. Jace is already a very tough fighter, with 26 hit points, but I get to add a d8 plus 1 for his constitution bonus. A roll below 4 will min out as usual. The roll. A 2. Ah well, it still ends up a 5 after the min-out and bonus. His new total then is 31. I really can't be unhappy about that, right? Let's see if there will be any luck with stat increase rolls. Strength. Jace currently has a strength of 9. Yeah, this is probably why he never took to blacksmithing. Will it go up today? A 6! Yes, it will! He goes up to a more respectable 10 in this score, and I am smiling from ear to ear. Next up is intelligence. A 5. Wisdom? I've got a four. Dexterity is next. Another five. Constitution. A two. Charisma. And a four. Well, despite the fairly average results of this level up, I'm still really satisfied, and I feel that Jace is coming along nicely. 
He also gets an increase in his basic attack bonus, going from a plus one to a plus two, and that's nothing to sneeze at. Now it's Catsbane's turn. This level is a big deal, because level five is where magic users get their first third level spell. But first things first, hit points. A d4, unmodified. The roll. Three. Well, that's actually pretty good. Catsbane goes up to 15 hit points. Stat increase rolls are next. For strength. A six? Okay. Hey, does that remove his penalty? Alas, no. He will still suffer a minus one penalty to attack rolls. Given the lifestyle he and the others have been leading, it's not too surprising to see that he's toughened up, though. It makes good sense. Has he gotten any smarter? Rolling for intelligence. A three on the die means he is not. Wisdom. A six? Wow, 13 becomes 14. It must be all the quiet reflection he's been doing lately. Now, there's no mechanical difference here, but it is welcome nonetheless. Dexterity is next. I've got a five. Constitution? A one. And charisma. A third six? That is very rare indeed. 10 becomes 11 as the magic user continues to figure out exactly who he is and where he belongs. I hope all my good luck hasn't been used up, because I am wishing for a whiz-banger of a new spell. Lately, Catsbane has been spending a lot of time holding a kind of mystical council with an infernal being. This is the same being that granted him the powers of web and invisibility. Catsbane knows their concord is a dangerous one, but cannot resist the lure of power. He decides to accept one more bargain from the being in return for something, who knows, and Catsbane receives a new ability. BXD&D lists 12 spells for level 3. As usual, I'll roll at random, and if I get one I've used extensively in the previous season, I will create a new table of exotic spells. Otherwise, Catsbane will get whatever the die indicates. Ready? Rolling a d12. I rolled a 7. Now I can't help but be a little disappointed by this result. Still, the roll is the roll. The spell he receives is Infravision. It allows him to see in the dark up to 60 feet and lasts for a full day. Since it's his only third-level spell, it's safe to say that unless he's somehow prevented from casting it, he always will as part of his morning routine of study. I won't bother to list it on the party status updates. It can be assumed from now on to always be in effect. And who knows, it might become extremely important at some point in the future. Certainly, it makes a great deal of narrative sense. I mean, night vision is a very appropriate gift from an infernal entity. In retrospect, I don't see Catsbane as having to trade anything especially valuable for this. It's probably an outright gift from the being as it tries to win him over. Before we get to the narrative, I want to make it clear that for the sake of this game, Infravision is simply the ability to see in the dark, like a cat. It does not provide a heat map or grant the ability to see through walls or see things that are invisible or anything like that. Oh, there's one more thing before I end this section. Jason Catsbane are not the only ones who level up today. In Tale of the Manticore, advancement proceeds for NPCs the same as for PCs, and so today Romola will reach level 7. I won't work through that advancement at this time. It makes more sense to wait and see if we even hear from her again. Okay, with that all said, it's time to join our PCs and see how they're getting on. Chapter 43 Part 1 Day 120 One hour before dawn Party status Yellowfly 30 of 30 hit points Shawnee 22 of 22 Jace, 31 of 31. Catsbane, 15 of 15. Spells available. Catsbane has memorized Magic Missile, Burning Hands, Invisibility, and Web. 
Is anyone going to tell us why this man is so important? Asked Jace, referring to the hooded and shivering new addition to their number. Why are we supposed to risk freezing to death over him? Here, he hooked a thumb sideways at the royal gesture without even looking him in the eyes. Briar Patches shrank back a little, but did not otherwise react. Yellowfly was not presently interested in discussing it. We'll have time to talk about all of that later, Jace. Let's go. <sighs> Always later, eh? This is no time for a pissing contest. Now take the rope from Cat's Bane and up you go. Yellowfly was shivering from cold. To be fair, he'd been outside an hour longer than anyone else, having had to fetch their current charge from Lord Rabbit's estate. Although he still had the huge gap between his teeth and the big brown eyes, Briar Patches no longer looked anything like a child. In fact, he looked like an old man, a frightened and tired old man. His big eyes were now islands floating in dark hollows, and heavy bags hung below them. He looked like he hadn't slept in a week. In truth, he barely had. <laughs> Jace grunted and waved his hand around in the gloom, unable to properly see the rope Catsbane proffered. When he found it, he pulled himself up the wall and then went down on the other side. They only had the one rope between the six of them, so Shawnee had gone up first and was straddling the top of the wall, pulling up the rope and tossing it back down after each of them had gotten over. Once they're all over the wall safely, the PCs will face the first truly dangerous part of their plan. For Shawnee, a single rogue with skill in remaining hidden, crossing Burton Square had not been too difficult but now there are half a dozen of them. It's very late at night, and there's falling snow to help conceal the group, but getting to the far side of the square, even sticking to the edges and shadows, is risky. How risky, I wonder. I think I'm going to say it's twice as dangerous and roll for a wandering encounter with disadvantage. If either die shows a one, there's going to be trouble. Furthermore, if I roll snake eyes, it will be a worst case scenario, though I don't presently know what that might be. I suppose I'll deal with that when and if it happens. Ready? Here's 2d6. I got a 6 and a 3. Looks like they'll get across without incident. Burton Square was completely deserted. The only people in sight were the unfortunates hanging from the gallows and twisting slowly in the wind like bored sentries. It was not long before the companions arrived at Shawnee's channel. I thought you said you got the lock off, said Jace curtly. He was still moody. I did, Shawnee shot back, crouching down and removing the already opened padlock from the grate. The others were huddled together, looking down at the small space, doubtfully. <sighs> you sure we can all fit in there? He persisted. Just suck in your gut, replied Shawnee. Jace was not the one in danger of getting stuck. Yellowfly was the broadest among them. He didn't look pleased about the prospect of going in, either. They all looked miserable, except perhaps for Briar Patches, who stood by like a spirit among them, hooded, silent, and completely emotionless. It's a little bigger than it looks. We just need to chip the ice away. Shawnee started to work on the ice. It broke fairly easily under the force of her dagger strikes, revealing an extra foot of water beneath. Well, I do not have a good feeling about this, mumbled Yellowfly. You sure we can make it through this, Shawnee? No, she replied simply, but apparently smugglers have been doing it for years. I'm surprised it's as big as it is, Yellowfly, observed Catsbane, trying to say something optimistic. Surely they would not need such a large channel just to siphon off the meltwater or prevent flooding. It must have been added after the wall was first constructed. Fascinating. If I get struck in the middle, well, at least I'll be able to contemplate the history of architecture as I freeze to death. 
The cold is a real danger, agreed Caspane, ignoring the other man's sarcasm. It's going to be bad on the way through, but it will be far worse once we reach the other side and get out into the air soaking wet. The cold will not be a problem. It was Bazu, who was already taking his cloak off. Sadal will protect us. I have prayed for his aid, remember? I can't believe I'm actually doing this, said Yellowfly, and he too began to remove his cloak. Let's get this over with. Have no fear, reminded Bazu. Sadal is watching over us. Sure, Bazu, replied Yellowfly, clearly unconvinced. He pulled off his shirt, pants, and undergarments, and, after a few moments, stood before his companions, stark naked and shivering. He rolled all of his clothes into a ball. Shone, hand me your knife. She did. Yellowfly sucked in a big breath of air, <gasps> squeezed his eyes shut, and hopped into the freezing water. Oh! He let out a yelp of shock. Later, he would wonder if it had been produced purely by the expectation of cold. Because, impossibly, there was no cold. The companions observed Yellowfly with wincing apprehension until they realized that his face was not a rictus of pain. In fact, he was smiling like a lunatic. It's warm, he said in absolute wonderment. Like a bath. Whatever devilry. Catsbane, is this your doing? Catsbane shook his head back and forth. I told you, said Bazu, smiling as he pulled off his shirt. Sadal is watching over us. The Dungeons & Dragons Podcast UK presents The Secrets of the Silver City. Join us for a homebrew actual play fantasy adventure in which our would-be heroes set out on a mission across the plain of Innistrad on a mild, grimdark yarn. With information to gather and answers to find, their path leads them through many unexpected twists and turns, meeting some amazingly colourful characters along the way. Starring Quinn Digrimon, the plucky paladin. Oh! Who shot you? Now it's an attack. <laughs> Can't call that a messaging system. Ogvar Surefort, a rugged ranger. Can someone get it out? I say, uh, that's not very sporting, is it? Elora Greyvale, the sassy sorceress. I'm taking a nap, guys. Her eyes roll back in her head and she's just like, oh, and that's it. That's the last thing you hear from her. Mm, I do think so too. And Kado Chasseur, the all-consuming cleric. They're well prepared, aren't they? I think we might have been rumbled. Awesome! Ah. With immersive RP, combat, magic, humour and emotion, not to mention the inevitable disastrous dice rolls and the chaos that those bring forth. Join our all-British podcast crew in an entertaining tale not to be missed. Listen now on all major streaming services. Pick up the links from our Facebook group or website. Search the Dungeons & Dragons Podcast UK or via Twitter at Podcast Team UK. Since the party has not been in a proper combat situation in some time, I thought that this challenge should be a very dangerous one, with the real chance of a character fatality. I'd started to think up a mechanic by which every round spent in the freezing cold water would take off a certain amount of hit points. There would be constitution checks to be made, that kind of thing. I'd gone so far as to start researching the effect of hypothermia online. Then I had a sudden notion and, after a quick visit to the Old School Essentials SRD website to look something up, I found that. Well, I'll just read it to you. Resist cold. Duration, six turns. Range, 30 feet. All creatures within range are protected from cold as follows. Normal cold, unharmed by non-magical freezing temperatures. Not only does this cleric spell last for a full hour, 
but Bazu can cast it twice and give his party two hours of total protection. And he absolutely would have prayed for it twice, knowing what they were going to face. Two hours is more than enough to get everyone through the channel and, given the wind outside, completely dry off before donning their clothes once again. Unless... I wonder if there will be a second locked grate on the other side of the channel. Am I being unfair to my characters? Nah, it makes enough sense that I should at least roll for it. What are reasonable odds? 50-50? That sounds about right. I'll do a high-low on a d20. Low means the other side is locked as well. The roll. Chapter 43 Part 2 Day 120 A little before dawn Party status The party status is unchanged. The channel was narrow with rough and unevenly cut stone walls. It was fairly level, but the headroom started to diminish the further in they got. Whatever stonemason had cut this channel must have realized that, in cutting through 20 feet of stone, there was no need to make the path any wider than was strictly necessary. Even without the shrinking headroom, and even without the people crowded in behind him, it would have been claustrophobic. At one point in the middle, the space between the surface of the water and ceiling shrank to a mere eight inches, and Yellowfly was forced to dunk his head, submerging entirely to pass through while holding his bundle of clothes aloft. It was also very, very dark. Panic might have easily overtaken any of them, but the warmth of the water filled them with wonder and a sense of the divine. Sadal really was watching over them, and the fear that any sane person should have felt crawling through the cramped channel simply did not come. Yellowfly emerged into air and sucked in a breath. He chipped away more ice, broke it off, and peered ahead. There was a dim light at the end of the channel in the shape of a flattened rectangle. As he broke away even more ice and inched further along, he saw that there was a grid pattern in front of that light, and his heart sank. Would they have to turn back? A splash behind him told him Shawnee had just passed through the same middle section where the ceiling was lowest. He relayed to her what he saw ahead, and... With great difficulty, she managed to squeeze by him, their naked bodies pressing hard into each other as she passed. A little more effort of breaking ice and pushing forward got her to the grate. Fly, there's a lock on this side too. This was, in fact, something of a relief. It was better than an unopenable iron grate in any case. Yellowfly heard the sound that indicated the others had passed through the pinched narrow center of the channel one by one. Before long, all five of them were queued up behind Shawnee, hoping she would be able to defeat this lock as well, and trying not to think of what would happen if she should fail. What Shawnee calls the Smuggler's Channel was indeed built by a single stonemason. Being a reasonable sort of person, this mason cut a path halfway through the 20-foot-thick curtain outer wall of the city, and then went around to the other side and started digging in the opposite direction, cutting until the two tunnels met. This is the method that, if one was careful with their measurements, I think would take the least amount of work. And this explains why the channel pinches in the middle and flares out slightly at either end like a bow tie. I mention all this detail because the companions have been required to change their marching order to let Shawnee to the front. This is only possible because of the way the channel was dug. Now that Shawnee is at the front, she'll need to defeat this second lock. I'd been wondering if I had been too hard on the PCs. Does it really make sense that the smugglers would set things up so they had to pick two locks to pass through this channel? Actually, I think it does. These smugglers, whoever they are or were, 
would know these locks very, very well and would have practiced on them many times over. Getting through would be easy for them. Not so for Shawnee, who is encountering the padlocks for the first time. As before, she has a base 45% chance for success. Unlike the first attempt, she's not going to be penalized this time around due to the cold, which means she will get the bonus conferred by her magical gloves. So that's a plus. But you know what? As I'm reaching for my dice, a nasty thought occurs to me. Might Jace, who was the last one into the channel, have shut the padlock when he closed the gate behind them? Nobody told him not to, and he knows there's no plan to come back this way. It might seem like a logical thing to do as a way to hide the evidence of their passage. What are the chances that he did, in fact, do that? One in ten? Yeah, I'm just going to roll for it, even though this could dramatically complicate things. Okay, I've got a d10 in my hand. A one on the die means Jace did, in fact, lock the grate behind them. I got a 10. He absolutely left it open. Uh, hopefully that won't end up hurting him in the future. Anyway, right now I need to roll another time for Shawnee's attempt to pick the second lock. She needs a 55 or under on D percentile. Rolling. Uh-oh. A 64. Well, at least I can confidently say that things could be worse. That said, Shawnee cannot defeat the lock. And, after everything, the companions might be forced to turn back, unless I can come up with some other solution. Hmm. This is going to require some thought. I'm going to put the dice away and sleep on it. Maybe in the morning, I'll have an idea. But right now, I got nothing. After a time, Shawnee put her tools away in defeat, and turned around with an apologetic expression on her face. She simply said, I can't do it. Yellowfly, crestfallen, looked around in the dim channel, trying to make out the expressions on his companions' faces. Catsbane was right behind him. He could see the young mage's eyebrows were furrowed in frustration. In front of him, Shawnee was a silhouette against the bright rectangle of the outside world. There's nothing for it. We'll have to go back, he muttered, try to find another way. There were audible groans from his companions, and they were just about to return when Catsbane blurted out, Wait, I, I might have an idea. I really don't know if it can work, but it may be worth a try. I'm willing to try anything, said Yellowfly. What's your idea, Catsbane? It's, uh, it's a bit hard to explain, and like I said, it may not work, but somehow I think it will work. Um, I I'll need to get up in front of Sharnay, though, and uh, have a look at that lock. With considerably more self-consciousness than Sharnay had felt, Catsbane made the necessary moves to get past the two in front of him first grinding by Yellowfly's coarse nakedness, and then trying to pass by Shawnee's small, hard body without touching it and failing completely. Catsbane's cheeks were flushed by the time he reached the grate, and his face felt hot. But he found what he was looking for. The padlock was tight enough against the iron bars that he could wiggle it so that it laid flat and sticking out with the keyhole facing up. He gathered some spit in his mouth and then let it fall from his lips directly into the keyhole. Next, and with considerable trouble and awkwardness, he unbundled his pack and retrieved something very, very small. This he stuck into the keyhole so that it sat amongst his saliva. What marriage is going on up there? Jace's rough voice in the gloom behind him. Shh, Gaspain knows what he's doing, came Yellowfly's quiet admonition. Um, does anyone have anything in their packs made of, um, tin by any chance? Nobody did. But Jay said, My belt buckle was made of pewter, would that do? As the son of an ironmonger, Jace knew that pewter contained a lot of tin. 
Yes, pewter. Yes, that should work. Uh, could you pass it up to me? I'm afraid that you won't be... Well, um, we'll have to get you a new one. Jace didn't reply audibly, but after a few moments, fumbling with his bundle of clothing, passed his belt up the line. Very good, mumbled Catsbane to himself. He used his dagger to cut the buckle free of the leather and then dropped the strap into the water. Then he placed the buckle directly atop the padlock so it covered the keyhole like a lid. <sighs> I hope this works. Catsbane calmed his mind, touched his thumbs together, and spoke the words to a spell he had never cast before. Sidnagenrap. Thanks so much for listening to Tale of the Manticore. If you've enjoyed the show and would like to help to support it, there are loads of ways to do so. You can recommend it online or to friends. You can like and repost episode announcements on social media. You can pick up One Shot in the Dark, the Pendulum World Building Tool, or Encyclopedia Manticorica on DriveThruRPG. And finally, you can rate or review the show on your podcatcher of choice. Even after a few years running, the show keeps growing and finding new listeners. And I have all of you to thank. You know, it took two and a half years to reach 300,000 downloads, but just another six months to reach 400,000. Half mil. Here we come. One of the ways I grow the audience is through your kind reviews. Please allow me to share one right now. This one was from the Chartable website via Apple Podcasts, and was posted by RickDog72. RickDog72 writes, Love this podcast. Reminds me of those old D&D sessions I played as a teenager. The dark and gritty reality and the death around every corner feel keep me engaged and wanting to listen to just one more. Brilliant. Thanks a million, RickDog72. I'm very grateful to you for taking the time to write that. I'm thrilled that my pod has that just one more quality. It's probably from all the salt I sprinkle on it. At this point, I'd like to thank my excellent cast of voice actors. I finally managed to get all three members of the TumbleDye team into one app. Bazu is played by Andrew Fling. Jace is given voice by Kevin Berenger, and of course, Kyellen is in the role of Catsbane. I'm indebted to these three guys who have done such a remarkable job with the show. Thanks very, very much, Team Tumbledye. For listeners who'd like to get in touch with me, I'm at Manticore Tale on X or Tale of the Manticore Podcast on Instagram, and there's always email, taleofthemanticore at gmail.com. Finally, I keep a blog where I post all kinds of show and RPG related stuff like art, maps, tables, crafts, and show notes. You can find it at taleofthemanticore.blogspot.com. The adventure will continue on the next episode of Tale of the Manticore. It's the story where chaos rolls. For old school classic role playing, it doesn't get any more old school than Lichyard Games. Specializing in stock and classic role playing games from the 1970s through the early 2000s, Lichyard Games has a bit of everything rule books, box sets, modules, and supplements. From OG RPG producers like TSR, Judges Guild, Mayfair Games, Game Designers Workshop, Iron Crown Enterprises, and more. So, whether you're a classic RPG collector on a quest to complete your Dungeons & Dragons basic set module collection, or looking for table copies of iconic modules to bring to your gaming table, check out LichyardGames.com and be sure to follow them on Facebook and Instagram for all the latest.